Good morning. That was resounding response. Let's try that again. Good morning. All right, that's better. Happy Father's Day. Uh, it's good to be here this morning. Uh, good uh, to, to celebrate today. Um, uh, my name is Jeff Nine. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm one of the pastors here and would love to, love to get a chance to meet you uh, afterwards. Uh, our family is celebrating Father's Day, um, and uh, I'm the best father in my family, my immediate family anyway, not extended family, my, my immediate family. And so I'm just taking a little bit of pride in that. Uh, we also are celebrating the fact that uh, today marks 10 years to the day our family moved to uh, Oklahoma, to Oklahoma City, to begin the, the, this season of life in ministry here. And so it's, it's, a, it's a fun day uh, to, to think back on all that God has done over the last decade. And so my heart's really full just thinking about that. Um, this, this morning, uh, we want to step into this text. And, and I think that what Mark is saying in this passage um, is in some ways um, the kind of thing that we could we could try to just kind of skirt by and act like it's 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 not really directed at us, um, but I think if we'll stop and we'll actually step into this text, we're gonna we're gonna see something pretty profound and hear something pretty profound. And so uh, if you're uh, with us and you're not a Christian, I just want to say I'm really glad you're here. Thank you for being here. Uh, it's a brave thing to come into a church service when you're like, I don't think I believe what they believe. Um, and I, it's not lost on, uh, on me that that's, a, that that's a hard thing. I just want to say I'm grateful you're here. It takes courage to be here. Uh, I also want to say this. There is no question off limits. There's no challenge skepticism off limits. There's, no, uh, there, there's nothing that we're going to try to, we're going to stiff arm you with. And so if you've got questions that you want to process, maybe what we're talking about today or why we're talking about it or what we're doing or why we're doing it, we would love to process that with you. And so you can catch me or one of the other leaders afterwards and, and we'd love to get to know you. So uh, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to pray for me because I, I really do believe that there is something here that God wants to say to us, not to just people generally, but to us in this room this morning. So let's pray. God, um, would you speak to us? Would you speak to us? Would you um, not just, I, I don't want us to come out of this morning with a little more uh, data about your scriptures or about who you are. I'm asking you to speak to our hearts where we are today. Whatever we brought into this room, whatever we're carrying with us, would you speak to our hearts today, I pray. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I think... I think I'm not going out on a limb here to say that if I were to ask and just go around Yukon area, Canadian County, and taking a poll, and I ask, are you a Christian, more than likely I'm going to get above 50% saying yes. Now, that's not the way in all places of the world, but in our neck of the woods, we're Christians, or at least many of us are. But I think if we dug down deeper, you would find that if people said yes to that question, they'd probably give, say yes for very different reasons. Now, maybe they're not even aware of all the reasons they might say yes, but if I ask, are you a Christian, and you say yes, let's just go a, let's go a level deeper, because I think that if you get to the core of it, the heart of it, some people would say they're Christian simply because they're Americans. I mean, America, right? It's a Christian nation. So the parable goes. So like this idea of like, I'm, I'm somehow connected to this thing that's Christian that I think is Christian, so therefore I'm a Christian. Some would look at that, and, and they wouldn't do that. They would simply say, I'm a Christian because I'm moral. I mean, I, I don't do too many bad things. I may roll through a couple stop signs, maybe drive a little too fast at times, maybe round that number down on the tax return a little bit, but it's not that bad. I'm not really that bad. I'm a Christian. I'm a, I'm a good moral person. 
Others would say, I'm a Christian simply because I grew up in a Christian home. My family is Christian. I grew up, I have a Christian heritage. I'm, I'm associated with Christianity. Sound about right? Sound like some of the reasons that people would give for being Christian. Uh, the problem is the Bible doesn't allow us to say we're Christians based on these things at all. The Bible says very unequivocally that to be a Christian is actually to be a disciple of Jesus. To actually be a disciple of Jesus. There's no separating these two things apart. Now, before some of you tune out, because I know how some of you all think, like I'm in church, I'm, I'm a Christ follower, he's going to talk about discipleship, I've already got that box checked, I'm good, let me start thinking about my meal after this thing. Let me, let me ask you to hang with me for a little bit. Because what we're going to encounter in this passage are different ways in which people, different people relate to Jesus and who he is. And I think sometimes we might be surprised to find that we don't relate to Jesus the way we think we do sometimes. So before you tune this out, I want you to hang with me and I want us to do some work today because the question of how we relate to God is not peripheral to the Christian life. It's central. It's not just are we connected to Jesus. It's how are we connected to Jesus. It's not just do, are, we, are we somehow relating to Jesus, but how are we relating to Jesus? Now, like I said earlier, if you're, if you're not a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. I want, I want you to see what it is that, that Jesus might say to you in this text. And I want you to do some work with us as we step through these passages. But there's three different kinds of people that are talked about in this passage. This passage is going to talk about the crowds. It's going to talk about Jesus' enemies. And it's going to talk about his disciples. So let's dive in. We're looking at Mark 3, verse 7. Let's read through verse 9. It says, and Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Now move on to verse 20 and it says this. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not, so that they, being Jesus and his disciples, could not even eat. You see, Mark is making a clear distinction between the crowd and Jesus' disciples. There was a lot of people following Jesus. There were, there were many people that would have called themselves disciples, followers after Jesus that were following him around. But Mark is making a distinction between those men and women and this crowd, this great crowd. You see, the great crowd was intrigued by Jesus. I mean, they, they had heard stories and they wanted to press in to see if this thing was real. Before Twitter existed, before uh, TikTok existed and whatever other social media that's been invented in the last five minutes that this old fogey doesn't know about yet, they didn't have any of that. But let me tell you, word spread. You see, Jesus had been walking through towns and villages all around Galilee, and he had come across people who could not walk, and he healed them, and they began to walk. He came to some who were lepers and had, uh, and had a disease that could not be cured. He spoke to them, touched them, and they were healed. He cast out demons. 
He, he was doing all kinds of miracles left and right in these towns. And the word spread. And a whole lot of people said, I want to see that. I want to see that. I want to see, I want to see what, what's Jesus going to do next. How is he going to perform for us next? What, what's he going to do to impress me next? And the crowds began to gather, some of them because they were bringing deep pain and they were hoping Jesus would address their pain. And some were coming just to see a show. Some were coming just to see a show. But this crowd, they, they, they were intrigued by Jesus. They chased him down like he was nothing more than a healer or a miracle worker. They, they came to Jesus because they wanted to get something from him. They wanted to get a miracle. They wanted to get a show. Ultimately, they approached him as, as somebody who would profit them or would at least entertain them. It's just pure consumerism. Just pure consumerism. That they engaged with Jesus as long as they felt like it was worth the trade. I think, I think I could say that many of us in this room have done the exact same thing, haven't we? We may be disciples of Jesus. We may actually be Christ followers. We may be uh, engaged in a community group and, and engaged on Sundays and, and really trying to live out what Jesus has called us to. But when life goes south, we begin to wonder if it's all worth it or not at all. We're, we're all, all in on Jesus as long as Jesus is giving us the things that we want. This was the crowd. The crowd was enamored by Jesus, but they weren't captivated by who he was. They were enamored by what he did, not captivated by who he truly was. The crowd was impressed but when things went bad, or when they didn't get the thing they wanted, they were out. That's the crowd. But there's another, another group of people that this text is going to talk about that we need to look at as well. So there's the crowd, and then there are the enemies. Look at verse 11 and verse 12. It says, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. You see, where Jesus went, everywhere he went, there was always a crowd, but there was also always opposition. There was always coming people, or things, people and things coming in to oppose him. Last week, actually the very last, word, the very last verse that we talked about last week shows the religious leaders in Jesus' day Get, they, they have had enough of Jesus, and they're literally starting to figure out how can we kill this guy. So he's got enemies. Right now, the enemies he has are these demonic forces. The Bible's clear that not everyone was a fan of Jesus. These people were out to get him. They were out to oppose him. They were out to push back on him. The demons were bringing disruption. They were bringing bondage. They were bringing oppression. You see, the very things that Jesus was coming to bring, they were opposing at every single turn, at every single turn. But they're not the only people in this text that are opposing Jesus. I want you to look at verse 21. Verse 21, and when Jesus' family heard it, heard about all these things that Jesus had done and said, 
<laughs> they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Huh. His family? Je Jesus' family. We're talking about a mom who had an angel appear before her and say, the, 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 the baby that you are carrying right now is going to redeem all of mankind. And the brothers and sisters that were probably quite annoyed at a brother who actually was perfect, right? I mean, it's got to be hard being a sibling of Jesus. You can't go, well, he did it. He's perfect. That's, that's annoying. But the family that saw him, that walked with him, that lived life with him, came in at a certain point. They said, we've had enough. This guy's insane. And they started warning people off from him. Jesus' own family was embarrassed by him and tried to explain away everything. You see, I don't think that there's very many of us in this room, probably any of us at all, that would say, yeah, I'm an enemy of Jesus. Probably wouldn't be here this morning if you answered that that way. Even people that aren't Christians might go, I'm not, a, I'm not an enemy of Jesus. I mean, he's cool and all if he's real. I mean, I guess he's, he's, he's nice. He, he's moral. He loves everybody. I mean, really, what is there to dislike? Except for when Jesus starts to say stuff we don't like, then all of a sudden we're out. So there's a lot of people that would say, I'm cool with Jesus as long as he doesn't rock the boat too much, as long as he doesn't say that thing or do that thing, as long as he doesn't demand this from my life. You see, the, the crowd and the, and the enemies of Jesus, I think, have a lot more in common than we tend to think. We tend to think of the crowd are fans and the enemies are not exactly fans. But I think in both cases, both of them want something from Jesus to buy their allegiance. You see, the crowd wanted a show or they wanted a miracle. Jesus, if you'll do this thing for me, then I will follow you. The enemies had something actually very similar before they became enemies. If you will line up with me, Jesus, we're cool. But if you say things I don't agree with, do things I don't agree with, I'm out and I'm opposing you. Do you see how in both cases, it's a demand that Jesus meet us the way we want him to meet us. We're de making demands of Jesus, either that he does tricks for us or that he doesn't rock the boat. Tim Keller says, says it this way. He said, there are two different ways to actually oppose Jesus. One is to become very, very, uh, immoral, to become very irreligious, to actually, to actually deny uh, who Jesus is, to, 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 to be an affront against him. But there's also a way to avoid Jesus himself by becoming very, very religious, where all of a sudden we begin to set up the guidelines or the expectations of what it looks like for Jesus to be on our side, not us on his. So the crowd and the enemies, I don't think are as far apart often as we are taught to think so. Matter of fact, I want, to go, I want to go one step further and say this. If Jesus never offends you, you're not seeing him correctly. See, Jesus is wise and perfect, knows all, sees all, right? 
are you? Okay, thank you. Good answer. You passed that test. You're not. You don't have the wisdom he has. You don't have the perspective he has. You're not the first of, of all of creation. You're not, the, you're not the authority over the universe. And so let me just say very, very clearly, at some point there will be a conflict between those two things. There will be a conflict between what you think is right and what he thinks is right. The question is, when there's a conflict, who wins? You or Jesus? Jesus' enemies, when conflict happened, said, we're right, and Jesus loses. Friends, I, I don't think I'm going on a limb to say that even for those of us that have been Christ followers for a long time, there are, not, there are times in our lives where we treat Jesus like the crowd treated him or we treat him the way his enemies treated him. Either, Jesus, I will give you allegiance as long as you give me what I want you to give me, Keep me entertained. Give me gifts. Make my life smooth. Or we say, line up with my way of seeing the world. Am I wrong? I don't think I'm wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. And this text is a challenge, but it's also a deep invitation. Because see, if we're left at this point in the text and there's no more to talk about, that's actually really bad news. Because in the end, we're either the crowd or the enemy, and neither of those is good places to be. But there's a third group in this text that I want us to look at. And I want us to look at what are the implications that come out of this. So look at uh, Mark 3, verse 13. Let's read through verse 19. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the 12, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is sons of thunder. Side note, I butchered that even worse in the nine. And Kendra and I had an agreement that I would follow her pronunciation, which I think I failed on. That is, sons of thunder, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. It's a fascinating, fascinating passage. First, I want us to look at the key difference, the key difference here between the crowd and the enemies on one side and Jesus' disciples on the other. There's a key crucial difference, and it's here at the beginning. It says, and he went up to the mountain and he called to him, called to them. What's interesting about the crowd and what's interesting about the enemies is they both came at Jesus. It was their initiation. The crowd heard a story and said, that sounds cool. Let me go chase this one down. And they took initiative to move towards Jesus. The enemies heard what Jesus was doing. They're like, uh-uh, not on my watch. I'm going after this. And they moved towards Jesus to oppose. The disciples didn't come to Jesus. Jesus came to them. The disciples didn't come to Jesus because they somehow had unlocked this hidden secret. They were like, oh, let's go chase this guy down. Jesus 
came to them. The crowds and the enemies pursued Jesus. Jesus pursued the disciples. He went to the mountain and he called to him, listen to this, those whom he desired. Now look at this list. I mean, this is 12 like top-notch candidates. I mean, these, these 12 were amazing, right? Lawyers and doctors and really successful resumes and perfectly faithful believers. And if you know your Bible, you ought to be laughing because that's not this list, is it? And if you don't know the Bible and you, you haven't read this passage, that's cool. Just understand these 12 names here are not like, oh, they, yeah, that, that makes complete sense. Jesus would want them on his team. They're awesome. That's not this, this list. This list is full of names of people who none of us would desire. None, not, not anyone on this list we would have said, hey, do you want to lead a community group at Frontline Yukon? The resounding story about these disciples when you read Mark is not once are they impressive. Not once. At the very end of this story, you're left asking, if anything, why in the world would Jesus choose them? They're unimpressive failures is, one of the, is the way that one of the commentaries I read this week put it. Unimpressive failures. I mean, this is not an all-star lineup. Look at it. You have a tax collector. Now, uh, in, in this day and age, tax collectors in this part of, in, in this part of uh, Israel were not anybody anybody wanted to be associated with. This is something that Chad talked about uh, a couple weeks ago. Tax collectors were not, uh, were not somebody you wanted uh, on your team. One of them was a radical Jewish nationalist. The others, the brothers had this nickname, Sons of Thunder, which all I can think about is like WWE tag team duo, right? Yellow spandex, jumping off the top rail, breaking chairs over people's backs. Like, it's not a compliment when you call them Sons of Thunder. You're kind of you're going, you're a bit of a brash jerk, right? That's probably more what that, uh, what that nickname meant, Sons of Thunder. We have a doubter, Thomas, who when Jesus raised from the dead, he goes, I'm not even going to believe it until I see him. And then we have Judas the betrayer. Make no mistake, the text tells us very clearly Jesus knew Judas would betray him. And yet he calls him because he desired him. So before you rule yourself out as in, Jesus wouldn't want me, and you've got a long list as to why he doesn't want you, I want you to compare that list up against these fools. Because Jesus doesn't want people because you've got a cleaned up life. He, he didn't come to these disciples because they had a long resume of impressive skills and opportunities, or skills and, uh, and gifts. He didn't go, hey, they're, they're going to make me look good. He came to people that had a past that they, weren't, that they were ashamed of. He came to people that the world had rejected. The world had turned their back on. And those were the ones that Jesus wanted. That is who Jesus is. The one who wants the unwanted. Let's keep going. He went to the mountain and he called to him, those whom he desired, and they came to him. The scripture is very clear. We will never come to Jesus apart from him coming to us. 
fancy word for this in theology is election. That, that, that Jesus himself sets his affection on us, calls us to himself, and when he calls us, we come to him. You see, I think in our day, often the gospel gets turned into kind of this weird treasure map. It, it's like X marks the spot of where you're going to find this treasure, and, and if you find the treasure, you find all these goodies that go with it. And so like, hey, I, I found the treasure. You, you want, do you want a copy of the map? And you can find the treasure too. And we present Christianity as if it's somehow a venture in which it's our job to get to Jesus. It's our job to find him, to, 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 find, to decode the key, to unlock the clues, to find our way through this map so that we can somehow arrive. That's, no, that's, not, that's not even close to biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is not we finding our ways to God. It's Jesus coming to us. And when Jesus calls we come. When Jesus calls, we come. The gospel is not a treasure map. The gospel is this. Jesus saves sinners. That's the good news. And he went to the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him and he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. You see, what Jesus does here is he calls these disciples, those he wanted, they come to him, and then he, then he appoints them. He gives them a task, but, but look very carefully at what the task is. It's twofold. And we have a tendency often in, in our circles, church circles, to focus on the second one, that he sent them out. But I want you to hear the first one. He appointed them to be with him. Wow. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus is not doing stuff for him. Foundational to our relationship to Jesus is not what do you go out to go do? It's that the, being appointed a disciple is to be appointed to be with Jesus, to be near him, to be joined to him, to be united with him. That to be a disciple is not about what you do, it's about who you're with. Are we with Jesus? He doesn't want you because you're useful. He doesn't want you, because you can, so you can prove yourself. He doesn't want you because you've earned it. He wants you because he wants you. And then it says that he appointed them, that he might send them, that he might send them. This idea of preaching and casting out demons is, is both a, a sense of heralding the work about talking about the good news and actually living it out. Here, here at Frontline, we use the language of, king, uh, of pro, gospel proclamation, of proclaiming the gospel, telling people the good news, and demonstrating the kingdom, kingdom demonstration. Gospel proclamation, kingdom demonstration. We are going to be quick to tell the good news, and we're also going to be quick to do the good news, to live out the good news among us. But make no mistake that we do that with Jesus. We're not with Jesus and then sent by Jesus. We're both with him and sent by him. That means that wherever we go as a church, we are being sent with him. He's going with us. He's going with us. 
Now, I don't want us to, I don't, I don't want us to, to, to sideline or, or to kind of get pulled into an abstraction here, but there's actually something that's really interesting in this passage that, uh, that, that if we're not careful, we'll miss. And that's at the very beginning. It says, and he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12. Now, Mark's being really intentional here, really intentional here. If you're not familiar with your Old Testament, one of the things that the gospel writers do regularly is they give you just this little hint that points you back to part of the Old Testament. Because in the day when Mark was written, in the day when the gospel was written, they were written to people that knew their Old Testament and knew, knew it well. And if, the, if you were to ask a Jewish reader or somebody in the first century, hey, what was a time when God pulled people onto a mountain and appointed 12, you would immediately go to Exodus. You see, the book of Exodus is a fulfillment of a promise that God made to a man named Abraham. God had saved Abraham, not because Abraham was anything good or because he was impressive. He wasn't. But he said, hey, Abraham, I'm going to call you and make you into a mighty nation. Hundreds of years later, God, through Moses, leads this people out of Egypt and brings them to a mountain. And there he commissions 12 tribes to be this new nation of God, representing God in the world. What Jesus is doing here is he goes to a mountain and he calls 12 and he says, I'm starting a new kingdom. Starting a new kingdom and the church is born. You see, friends, we are called by Jesus to be a kingdom not of this world, but in this world. A kingdom not of this world, but a kingdom in this world. To not just preach and teach and proclaim the good news that this Jesus came to us, didn't tell us to come to him, but also, but also to live out the kingdom of God among us. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to be a disciple. You see, to, to be a disciple means we're not being a part of the crowd. We're not simply following Jesus when it feels like it, 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 it shows up on the positive column of our cost-benefit analysis. To be a part of the crowd is simply to follow Jesus when he's giving me the things I want. But what happens, friend, when you walk through the dark day? What happens when you walk through the dark day? And I ask that question, staring at the faces of people that I know have and are walking through dark days. And if we approach Jesus like the crowd, when the dark day comes and Jesus doesn't come through uh, on the moment that we pray, asking for him to come through in the way we want him to come through, we're out. But if we're called by Jesus, we're with Jesus even in the dark day. Some of us approach Jesus like the enemies do. I'm with him as long as he lines up with me. As long as he says what I want him to say, as long as he stays in his bounds, as long as he doesn't touch that part of my life. But as soon as he starts telling me what to do, I'm out. But to be a part, uh, to be a disciple of Jesus is to feel that impulse because we all feel it. 
I have, in, in my years of being a disciple of Jesus, I have felt the impulse of the crowd. I have felt those moments when I wanted to peace out because life got hard. And I have also found those moments to go, no, Jesus, you can't touch that part of my life. You can't go there. You can't say that. But to be a disciple is to be with Jesus, both in the dark day and when he tells us stuff we don't want to hear. That's what it means to be a disciple. But don't miss it. You are not a disciple because you are smart enough to figure it out. You're a disciple because Jesus called to you, because he desired you, and you came. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to be a disciple, is to be loved by Jesus. To be with him. And then to be sent by him with him. So I don't know what you brought in this in the room this morning. But if you would call yourself a Christian, I want to ask you this. Where in your life do you feel the pull of the crowd or the pull of the enemy? Because I guarantee you, even those of you that have been following Jesus for a long time, and you've even, even for those of you that have been really faithful in walking, you have felt that pull and you will feel that pull because it's inside each one of us. We all feel the pull of the crowd and we all feel the pull of the enemy. And I want you to just simply own that, name it, and bring it to Jesus. And then I want you to learn to rest in the fact that he called you not because you were worthwhile or because you brought something to the table, but because he wanted you. Rest in the fact that you are with Jesus because Jesus wants to be with you. If you're not a Christian, I'm asking him to speak to you, to call you. Because the good news of the gospel is not you can find your way to Jesus if you use the map just right. The good news is that when God calls your name, he wants you and you can respond to that. And if you're feeling him calling today, that's him calling, not me. I don't get to call for him. He calls for him. But don't run from that. When you hear the call of God in your life, come to him. If you've got questions about that, let's process. If you're bringing in things as in your walk of discipleship and you need to pray and process with a brother or sister uh, of how to walk through that, we want to do that together. Don't treat this as a me and Jesus relationship because ultimately these men and women were called by Jesus together. And so we as a church are gonna walk this road of discipleship together. And I'm asking you to jump in with us.